0: Hi, I'm Mike Paul, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Airs the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Airs are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We have four articles for you today. Our first article is by Ron Amadeo, published on January 7th, 2022. Google loses Sonos patent case starts stripping functionality from speakers. Following a preliminary ruling in August, the U.S. International Trade Commission has issued a final decision saying that Google infringed five Sonos smart speaker patents. It would be possible for this ruling to result in some products like the Nest Audio, Chromecast, and Pixel Line being banned in the U.S., but Google has prepared ITC-approved software downgrades which remove the infringing features from users' products. Sonos essentially invented the connected speaker category for streaming music, but the advent of voice assistants has led to big tech stomping all over Sonos' territory. Sonos says that while it was pitching Google for support of Google Play Music, Google got a behind-the-scenes look at Sonos' operations in 2013. Sonos says Google used that access to blatantly and knowingly copy Sonos' features for the Google Home Speaker, which launched in 2016. Sonos sued Google in early 2020. Eddie Lazarus, the chief legal officer at Sonos, told the New York Times... We appreciate that the ITC has definitively validated the five Sonos patents at issue in this case and ruled unequivocally that Google infringes all five. That is an across-the-board win that is surpassingly rare in patent cases. Sonos' patents deal with setting up and controlling groups of speakers. It's probably best to just look at what's changing, since Google's response to the situation has been to push out a software update, that removes or works around the infringing patents. On a Google Nest community post called Upcoming Speaker Group Changes, a Google rep tells customers, due to a recent legal ruling, we're making some changes to how you set up your devices and how the speaker group functionality will work moving forward. If you're using the speaker group feature to control the volume in the Google Home app, by voice with the Google Assistant, or directly on your Nest Hub display, you'll notice a few changes. As a side note here, there's some lengthy technical documentation which I'll sum up in three points. How to adjust the volume, that they will function mostly as expected, and that a small set of users will need to use a utility app to finish things up. The volume change is the biggest annoyance on this list. Previously, it was possible to control every playing speaker with a single slider and change the group speaker volume by voice. Now it sounds like only individual controls will be available. Google is also removing the ability to control the volume of speakers via your phone's physical volume buttons, a feature that was axed early in the Android 12 update. It sounds like it's also not possible to set speaker group volume via a smart home routine anymore. The comments on Google's post are worth a read, as it's filled with angry customers demanding refunds and threatening lawsuits. One user sums up the customer reaction nicely, saying, So you got sued by Sonos, and we pay the price? Either get some better lawyers and win the suit, or pay Sonos a royalty, or start issuing refunds to customers. Despite Sonos's win, the company hasn't gotten the outcome it wants. Sonos wants Google to pay royalties for its patents, not pull the rug out from under consumers by stripping features from already purchased products. It sounds like until that happens, Sonos is going to continue applying pressure to Google. Sonos' victory statement closes with, It is a possibility that Google will be able to degrade or eliminate product features in a way that circumvents the importation ban that the ITC has imposed. But while Google may sacrifice consumer experience in an attempt to circumvent this importation ban, its products will still infringe many dozens of Sonos patents. Its wrongdoing will persist, and the damages owed to Sonos will continue to accrue. Alternatively, Google can, as other companies have already done, pay a fair royalty for the technologies it has misappropriated. Our second article is by John Brodkin, published on January 6, 2022. France orders Google and Facebook to offer one-click cookie rejection. French regulators today ordered Google and Facebook to make rejecting cookies as simple as accepting them and fined the companies a total of 210 million euros for failing to comply with France's Data Protection Act. The CNIL, or National Commission for Information and Rights, said that Facebook.com, Google.fr, and YouTube.com offer a button allowing the user to immediately accept cookies, but do not provide an equivalent solution, button or other, enabling the Internet user to easily refuse the deposit of these cookies. Several clicks are required to refuse all cookies against a single one to accept them. The process making it harder to reject cookies than to accept them affects the freedom of consent of Internet users and constitutes an infringement of Article 82 of the French Data Protection Act, the CNIL said. The agency announced fines of €150 million for Google and €60 million for Facebook and said it ordered the companies to provide Internet users located in France with a means of refusing cookies as simple as the existing means of accepting them in order to guarantee their freedom of consent within three months. If they fail to do so, the companies will have to pay a penalty of €100,000 per day of delay. The CNIL said it has received many complaints from users about both companies. In its announcement of the Google fine, the CNIL said it determined that making the refusal mechanism more complex actually discourages users from refusing cookies and encourages them to opt for the ease of the I accept button. With Facebook, in order to refuse the deposit of cookies, Internet users must click on a button entitled Accept Cookies, displayed in the second window. Such a title necessarily generates confusion, and the user may have the feeling that it is not possible to refuse the deposit of cookies and that they have no way to manage it. The agency said it calculated each fine based on the number of data subjects concerned and the considerable profits the company makes from advertising revenues indirectly generated from the data collected by the cookies. But the penalties won't make much of a dent in either company's revenue. Google owner Alphabet reported $65.1 billion in revenue and $18.9 billion in net income in its most recent quarter, while Facebook reported $29 billion in revenue and 9.2 billion in net income. New cookie rules for these websites and mobile applications took effect on March 31, 2021. Since that date, the CNIL has adopted nearly 100 corrective measures, orders, and sanctions related to noncompliance with the legislation on cookies. The agency said. When contacted by ours. Neither Google nor Facebook said exactly how they will change their cookie policies to comply with the ruling. A Google spokesperson said, People trust us to respect their right to privacy and keep them safe. We understand our responsibility to protect that trust and are committing to further changes and active work with the CNIL in light of this decision under the ePrivacy Directive. Facebook owner Meta told ours. We are reviewing the authority's decision and remain committed to working with relevant authorities. Our cookie consent controls provide people with greater control over their data, including a new settings menu on Facebook and Instagram, where people can revisit and manage their decisions at any time. And we continue to develop and improve these controls. Our third article is by Tim DeChan, published on January 6th, 2022. Volvo's 2023 electric SUV will use LiDAR to drive itself. Level 3 autonomous driving appears to be poised to debut in the U.S. as soon as next year. At the 2022 Consumer Electronics Show yesterday, Volvo announced that it intends to offer its Ride Pilot feature to customers in California pending regulatory approval. The automaker has been testing the system in Sweden, and it will begin testing in California later this year. It plans to ship the feature with its forthcoming all-electric SUV due in 2023. Volvo chose California because the climate, traffic conditions, and regulatory framework provide a favorable environment for the introduction of autonomous driving, the company said. The system will enable drivers to direct their attention to tasks other than driving, though they'll still need to be prepared to take over when the vehicle requests intervention. What kind of tasks? Volvo mentions reading, writing, and working in its press release, but napping appears to be out of the question for now. We're still being very purposely nondistinct in the wake-up time that we require, Henrik Green, Volvo's chief technology officer, told The Verge. Taking a nap requires a wake-up time, so let's see how far and when we can get there. You need to be able to assume control in a certain time and take back the driving responsibility. It's unclear how Volvo will distinguish between a driver who is napping and one who is reading. Eye-tracking cameras are the most likely solution since nagging the driver periodically would defeat the purpose of level 3 autonomy. More details will be revealed later this year, Volvo told ours. Level 3 presents a challenging middle ground on the spectrum of autonomous driving. By definition, it will handle most circumstances, but it requires the driver to take over on relatively short notice. The system must identify handoff points early enough so the driver has time to re-engage with the road. That can be difficult at high speeds which is probably why Mercedes-Benz is limiting its Level 3 drive pilot system to 37 miles per hour, and only enabling it on geofenced portions of highways. Other companies, like Cruise and Waymo, are skipping Level 3 entirely and going for Level 4. With those systems, the vehicle must be able to drive itself and monitor its surroundings. There is no expectation for the human driver to take control in favorable circumstances. In unfavorable conditions, like blizzards, humans may still have to drive. Only with Level 5 are human drivers never required. Many cars today offer Level 2 autonomy. These Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, or ADAS, handle functions like automated cruise control and lane keeping. But drivers typically have to keep their hands on the wheel. Even more sophisticated systems like GM's Super Cruise and Ford's Blue Cruise still require drivers to keep their eyes on the road. To enable Level 3 autonomy, Volvo's forthcoming EV will be outfitted with one LiDAR scanner, five radar units, eight cameras, and 16 ultrasonic sensors. Inside the vehicle, software from Zenziact, a Volvo spinoff, will fuse data from the various sensors to provide a view of the road. The LiDAR sensor will be Luminaire's IRIS model, which is going into mass production this year. The company claims that its lasers can reliably spot objects at 250 meters. They operate at 1,550 nanometers, a significantly longer wavelength than most others, which typically use 905 nanometer lasers. Luminar chose the longer wavelength because it's less likely to be dangerous to people's eyes, allowing them to use higher power lasers, though how safe 1,550 nanometer lasers are appears to be an open question. Volvo plans to offer its ride pilot as a subscription rather than a one-time purchase. That model will give the company access to a recurring revenue, something many other automakers are chasing too, But Green, the CTO, claims it will also allow more people to access the feature. Not everybody sits on a big amount of cash available, he told The Verge. Subscription is a very low hurdle you can try out. Our fourth and final article is by Eric Berger, published on January 8, 2022. Remarkably, NASA has completed deployment of the Webb Space Telescope. For much of the world, Saturday was just another day of problems and perils. The Omicron-fueled pandemic raged around the globe. New York emerged from its first snowstorm of the season. Turmoil continued in Kazakhstan elsewhere. But in space, in space, Saturday saw a great triumph. After a quarter century of effort by tens of thousands of people, more than $10 billion in taxpayer funding, and some 350 deployment mechanisms that had to go just so, the James Webb Space Telescope fully unfurled its wings. The massive spacecraft completed its final deployments and, by God, the process went smoothly. Thanks to NASA and space agencies in Europe and Canada, the world has a brilliant new space telescope that will allow humanity to see further back into the depths of galactic time than ever before. The telescope might even identify the first truly Earth-like worlds around other stars. I dare say that 99% of the world will not know or realize or care to understand the amount of work and engineering and paperwork that went into building, launching, and deploying the James Webb Space Telescope. But those of us who know, we know. And we are in awe. In something of an understatement after full deployment, NASA's chief of science, Thomas Zerpigen, said, This is an amazing milestone. Scientists have always been keen on seeing further back into the early universe, and serious planning for a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope began in the 1990s. To look into the past, they would need a dark, cold environment far from Earth. This is because collecting light from the faintest, most distant objects in the universe requires not just a very large mirror, but also no background interference. To do this, scientists planned to build a telescope that would make observations in the infrared part of the spectrum, where wavelengths are just a little bit longer than red light. This portion of the spectrum is good for detecting heat emissions, and such wavelengths are long enough that there's less chance they will be deflected by interstellar dust. Such a telescope would need to be very cold, however, which is how scientists came to devise a tennis court-sized heat shield to block light and heat from the sun from affecting the Webb telescope. But because no rocket has a super large fairing, this heat shield and telescope would necessarily need to be folded like origami to fit within the protective cocoon atop a rocket. Nothing like that had ever been tried before. Building this heat shield testing it and ensuring it could be deployed in space required the better part of two decades. Therefore, while the launch of the Webb telescope on Christmas Day two weeks ago was momentous, it wasn't the end of Webb's journey from concept to science operations. As part of the deployment process, there were 344 actions where a single-point failure could scuttle the telescope. This is a remarkable number of instances without a redundant capability, which is why many of the scientists and engineers I have spoken with in recent years felt that Webb had a pretty good chance of failing once in space. But now, that ultra-complex heat shield is working. The temperature on the sun-facing side of the telescope is 55 degrees Celsius, or a very, very, very hot day in the Sahara Desert. And already, the science instruments on the backside of the sun shield have cooled to negative 199 degrees Celsius, a temperature at which nitrogen is a liquid. They will cool yet further. Work remains, of course. Webb still must traverse about 370,000 kilometers to reach an orbit around a stable Lagrange point, L2. Scientists and engineers must check out and align the 18 primary mirror segments. Scientific instruments must be calibrated. But all of this work is routine when it comes to science spacecraft, or as routine as anything in space can be. There are risks, to be sure, but these are mostly known risks. We can therefore be reasonably confident now that Webb will in fact begin to make science observations this summer. We should truly be in awe. Well, that brings us to the end of today's articles. To find out more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at facebook.com slash airsLA. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music for this podcast is provided by Hot Fire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more informative stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening.